do that work too for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, as you turn to 1 Peter 3, 1 Peter 3, we've already seen in 1 Peter the reality of suffering. And the Bible talks a lot about suffering in this world that's cursed by sin. We know it's a reality of life for everyone that we will suffer. No one's exempt. We all get sick. We all have broken relationships. We all say goodbye to people that we love in death. We all struggle with the turmoil and the difficulty of life on this ball of dirt until Jesus returns and the eternal state is fully consummated and there will be no more suffering or sorrow and death and tears and grief. But persecution isn't the same as suffering. It's a type of suffering, but it's a, not, not all suffering is persecution. Persecution is targeted at you because you identify with Christ. And you're striving to do good. And some in your culture or the culture at large don't like that. It could be the targeted persecution of a government against Christianity because the government has a state religion opposed to Christianity, like Hinduism, atheism, Islam. It could be the government also has anti-conversion laws. And so when Christians are doing what Christians do, it's in our DNA to share the hope of Jesus with people that we're around in hopes that they will believe in Jesus. When we're just doing that, governments aren't okay with that. And so they will persecute the believers and followers of Jesus. Could be within families. It doesn't have to be on a governmental level. So it could just be within families when there's believers and unbelievers mixed. There can be persecution because the unbelievers aren't okay with what the Jesus followers want to believe and want to do, or it could be a, a long line of believers of a particular religion, and now this, this person becomes a Christian, and it's not the religion of the family, and so they can be cast out, they can be ostracized. Or it could be a boss with an employee, it could be a husband and a wife, or someone else in our life, a neighbor, a coworker, who see how we're devoted to Christ and how that shapes everything we flavor and do, and they don't like it. For whatever reason, and they take it out on us. Like we get the normal suffering of life. Like we all have experienced that. We all know we're going to experience that. But it might be harder for us to grasp when we're trying to do good, be good, share the hope and love of Jesus, and in return, we get attacked. We get reviled. We get disparaged. So how do we live in light of that? It's not something we experience much here in the land of religious liberty, here in the Bible Belt South. And so it could be preparation for what we may experience wherever we may live in the future or how things may change in our own nation. But it can also be ways we can pray for our brothers and sisters in places like North Korea, Somalia, Yemen, Eritrea, Libya, Nigeria, Pakistan, Iran, Afghanistan, Sudan, India, Syria, Saudi Arabia, Myanmar, the Maldives. Those are the top 15 most dangerous countries to be a Christian, the countries that receive the most persecution according to Open Doors Ministry. Or countries like number 16 on that list, China. Number 33 on that list, Indonesia. Or number 44 on that list, Tajikistan. So let's see what we can learn today, beginning in verse 13 of 1 Peter 3. Who then will harm you if you are devoted to what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness, you are blessed. Do not fear what they fear or be intimidated. But in your hearts regard Christ the Lord as holy, 
ready at any time to give a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so that when you are accused, those who disparage your good conduct in Christ will be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. First, let's see the potential of persecution. You see a question there in verse 13, who then will harm you, almost rhetorical, if you're devoted to what is good? So general suffering is not a part of God's original creation. Death, sickness, sorrow, grief are all invaders. They do not belong in the original creation, and they will not be in the eternal state. We know that. But persecution for righteousness is not even normal in a sin-cursed world. In other words, it's not abnormal, but it's not guaranteed like general suffering. You can live your entire life as a follower of Jesus and not ever experience persecution, depending on where you live and depending on who you live around. Normally, you do good and there is reward. Like even governments are established as God's servants to reward the good and punish the wicked. And so as long as you follow the rules, obey the laws, be a good citizen, you can expect, generally speaking, life to go well for you. You can be expected to be rewarded for doing good and being a good citizen. But if you choose to do evil, you can expect to suffer consequences. Society keeps from sliding into anarchy based on that very basic order God has established. Before COVID, we walked through the Old Testament wisdom literature back in 2019, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Job, Psalms, Song of Songs. And one of the things we learned about a book like Proverbs is it's not a book of guarantees or promises, but a book of describing how life goes most of the time. Most of the time, if you work hard and you're not lazy, you get rewarded with wealth or income or some financial prosperity. That's not all the time. There are times you can work really hard and you're not lazy and you don't accumulate much. Or lazy people can get rewarded and do accumulate much. But most of the time, there's a correlation. If you make wise choices, not foolish choices, if you're sexually pure, if you're a good friend, if you're wise with your money, life goes well for you. That's how life works most of the time. But we also have a book like Job where where we have a guy who did everything right and everything went wrong. So this rhetorical question in verse 13 has that in view. If you do good, who will harm you? Rhetorically, you can generally expect no harm to come of you if you do good. That's an okay expectation, unless you go looking for a fight. But live a life devoted to what is good. But another way to view that question in verse 13 is, who can really harm you if you're devoted to what is good? Like, what does it mean to be harmed? In light of passages like Matthew 10, verse 28, don't fear those who kill the body but are not able to kill the soul. Rather, fear him who is able to destroy both body and soul in hell. In Romans 8, 35 and following, who can separate us from the love of Christ? Can affliction or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, because you are being put to death all day long, we are counted as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So in light of those passages, and in light of what is ultimate, not the preservation of life in this life, but the ultimate reality, the eternal state, 
in which we are always and forever secure in the love of Christ Jesus, if those who persecute us in this life can only throw us in prison, can only take away our jobs, can only fine us or penalize us financially, can only accuse us or revile us, they can only hurt us physically or emotionally, or they can only kill us. If that's all they can do, and none of that affects the ultimate reality of eternity and life and the love of Christ, can we really be harmed? We know those things are true. And if we really believe that, then we begin to experience the kind of hope that makes a difference. The kind of hope that transforms how we live. The kind of hope that will show up while we go through persecution and we will have to defend and declare the hope that we have. But persecution can happen for doing good. Look at verse 14. But even if you should suffer for righteousness, you can. Verse 17. For it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will. If God has willed and decreed and ordained that you would suffer this kind of persecution than it is for doing evil. And because that reality exists, it's not guaranteed, but it can happen, we need the admonition of verse 15. Be ready at any time. Be ready at any time to give a defense. The preparation for it to face this kind of persecution starts now, when you're not facing persecution. Like if somebody says, be ready at any time for a tornado, you know that you need to at least in your mind have a plan. What are we going to do if a tornado, watch, warning, whichever, shows up? Where are we going to go? Our family goes on the carport. Let's, where is it coming from? Let's look and see. Some families go in the bathroom or the hallway. Be ready at any time for a hurricane. There's things you need to have in place if you know a hurricane is coming. Be ready at any time for an intruder in your home. You need to take action now to be ready if that ever happens. Be ready for a zombie apocalypse. You need to know how are you going to be prepared to face that. In all these instances, you know the work begins now to be ready at any time. So how can we make preparations now so we can be ready at any time to face persecution for following Jesus? Five things that we see in this passage that we can do. Number one, we can prepare our emotions. Prepare our emotions. Look at uh, verse 14. But even if you should suffer for righteousness, you are blessed do not fear what they fear or be intimidated we can begin to prepare for our emotional response to persecution by realizing when you're in persecution you're not being cursed by God or punished by God you in fact are being blessed by God and we don't have to be afraid of our persecutors which helps us fight the negative emotions that we might be tempted to feel in the face of persecution of despair or frozen by fear. We might be tempted when we're attacked for doing good to think, hey, God, where's, where's the protection from? Dad, why are you not taking care of me? Why are you allowing me to go through this? Has he left me or has he abandoned me? Like I know he loves me, but it doesn't feel like he loves me because he's allowing this attack in my life. Like obviously I'm trying to do good, so why am I getting harm instead of good in return? And Peter says, you are indeed blessed if you suffer because of righteousness, blessed, a life stamped with the approval of God, 
a life to be envied, the good life God has come to give us. Jesus himself said in Matthew 5, the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. This is who will inherit the kingdom of heaven. Verse 11, you are blessed when they insult you and persecute you and falsely say every kind of evil against you because of me. Be glad and rejoice because your reward is great in heaven. For that is how they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Peter is not even writing this from the perspective of, well, Jesus said it, so it must be true. Peter's lived this. Peter can write firsthand account of what this feels like and how to go through this. In Acts, one of the several occasions where Peter was arrested in question, in Acts 5, they are detained, the apostles are questioned, they proclaim the gospel, and the religious leaders meet, and they decide, well, we can't really stop this. If this is not of God, it's going to fizzle out. But if, it's I- if it is of God, we can't fight God. And then it says in Acts 5.40, And they called in the apostles and had them flogged. They ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and released them. Then they went out from the presence of the Sanhedrin rejoicing that they were counted worthy to be treated shamefully on behalf of the name. And every day in the temple and in various homes, they continue teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. I doubt anyone here has been flogged. Even if you're part of a generation that got spanked growing up, it was never a flogging. You may have thought it was a flogging, not really. So none of us have ever had to be flogged and then try and rejoice in the face of the flogging. But they were able to because they saw what God saw. If you're persecuted because you look so much like Jesus and you're doing the work of Jesus, that's a life stamped with the blessing of God. This can only be seen through the eyes of faith. This, this can only be experienced because the Spirit of God is, is making it happen inside of us. But we can prepare ourselves now emotionally by really believing that persecution for righteousness is a blessing. Not that we're going out looking for persecution, but if and when it comes, we are ready because it's a life blessed by God. If, if it's for righteousness, verse 17, if it's God's will, like he allows and ordains his persecution. Not all suffering by Christians, especially in the West, is suffering because they are doing it for righteousness or they're doing it because they're a Christian. Like we still are a land of, of just vast religious liberties. We are nowhere close to making the top 50 list of religious persecution. We're, we're way down under, way past 100. But there are segments of people who call themselves Christians who make it sound like we're really suffering because we're being a Christian, because we can't shop at Target anymore, or you can't watch Disney anymore, you can't eat at Chick-fil-A or Cracker Barrel because they've made a statement as a company to give safe space for all image bearers and their lifestyle choices. This is called religious liberty. It's a good thing. If you know Baptist history, you know it's a very Baptist thing to give people the freedom to worship whoever they want to worship, however they want to worship this person or this being or this lifestyle this deity we don't coerce lifestyles or religious codes of conduct on people we don't want to be that kind of nation in fact the nations that do that they're the nations at the top of the list of religious persecution around the world coercing lifestyles coercing religion not allowing religious liberties so if we endure real persecution for righteousness that is a life blessed not cursed or abandoned by god In fact, I think we'll find God has never been closer than he is with his people suffering genuine persecution. 
And that closeness of God also helps us do what it says there in verse 14. Do not fear them or be intimidated by them. In his book, You Can Change, Tim Chester talks about how we can battle against the fear of man. And, and it's done by seeing the glory of God. When man is too big in our minds, so big that we begin to fear man. And this fear leads us to live a life seeking the approval or the acceptance of man. So man has become too big. How do you combat that? Well, you don't try to make less of man. You just begin to see God for as big as he is. See God accurately. See God as he's described in the pages of Scripture. Measures the universe by the span, the width, the breadth of his hand. Like we, we, we can't even humanly comprehend how big the universe is. And God's up there, one, two, three, four, he creates everything by the word of his power, spoke everything from nothing into existence and upholds everything by the word of his power. It's not even hard for God to uphold everything that exists. It's just God being God. He's mighty and majestic and powerful and glorious. He shakes mountains. He raises the dead. He calms the seas. He has ultimate power and authority. When you see God in your mind's heart as big as he is, then it can't help but make everyone else smaller. And if you have his approval and acceptance through his son Jesus, the ultimate proclaimer of the universe, the ultimate power of the universe, if he says, you are my dearly loved one, my dearly loved son, my dearly loved daughter, then how much can it really matter what these other people say about us or say to us or think about us? Which doesn't mean you just don't care about what those people say. God's for me, so I don't give a rip what anybody says about me, so I can just be a jerk. Nope, that's too far, okay? But what they say or think or how they revile you or accuse you or whatever doesn't ultimately matter because you have his acceptance and approval through his son, Jesus. And this helps us live a life not of being afraid or being intimidated. We're not hiding we're not going quiet. We're not compromising our faith. Well, I've, I believe this, and it's upset these people over here. Well, I need to change what I believe so I can make these people happy. And what about these people? Like, then you believe nothing. You're just like taking a poll and believing what all these people want you to believe so that they'll be happy with you. That, that doesn't work. So you're not compromising your faith. You're not hiding, going quiet. But you're living a life confident in what you believe because the voice that really matters the most is the most powerful voice in the universe and he has our back so we prepare ourselves emotionally secondly we prepare our hearts verse 15 this is all related as, as you'll see but in your hearts regard christ the lord as holy in our hearts our innermost being the core essence of who we are so not the physical heart that's pumping blood but the innermost part of our being and the place that matters most Christ the Lord is holy this is a, a tremendous statement of the divine nature of Jesus that Peter is expressing it's pulling in the Old Testament understanding of God Christ the anointed one the Messiah is the Lord the Old Testament name of God and he is set apart holy there's no one else and nothing like him. This is a burning bush, bush on fire, not being consumed. Take off your sandals, you're on holy ground. Understanding of God. 
This is the Lord appearing as fire and shaking Sinai. This is the three Israelites in the fiery furnace. But there's a fourth one in there who appears like the Son of God. Throughout the history of the church, we have swung the pendulum constantly between the eminence or the closeness of God and the transcendence or the otherness of God. Back in the medieval days, we built high and beautiful churches uh, and in the Reformation to show how high and mighty and awesome God is. And if you've been in these old churches in places like Europe, you've walked in, you're like, wow, this is unbelievable. These people had a very high view of God. And then we've swung the pendulum to the eminence. Like, how can we make God as approachable and as accessible as we can? He's our dad. He's our friend. And the reality is both of those things are true. Regard in your hearts, close, that Christ the Lord is holy, big, mighty, amazing, and awesome. Like, we don't need to swing the pendulums. We need to hold both of those things in tension so that we don't make God so accessible and so common we no longer regard him as king of the universe. We can sin and not feel like any conviction. We just kind of shrug our shoulders. Well, everyone sins. You know, everybody's got their issues. No one's perfect. Like we need to rediscover this admonition in this verse in your hearts. Once again, remember, he is the true most high God who is Lord and king of the universe. Yes, he wants us to come to him and feel like we belong because we are his kids, but don't forget who he is. He is God, and there's no one like him. As C.S. Lewis tried to write about this tension in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, and the conversation between the beaver couple, Mr. and Mrs. Beaver, and Lucy and Susan, Aslan a man, said Mr. Beaver sternly, certainly not. I tell you, he is the king of the wood and the son of the great emperor beyond the sea. Don't you know who is the king of beasts? Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Oh, said Susan, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. That you will, dearie, and make no mistake, said Mrs. Beaver. If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they are either braver than most or else just silly. Then he isn't safe, said Lucy. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he is good. He is the king, I tell you. We live preparing our hearts because we know in the deepest core of who we are, we know who God really is. Like when is the last time the power and the might and the holiness of God made your knees knock? When's the last time you've been tempted to sin and the reality of what a sin would mean in the presence of a holy God who you live in his presence woke you up to, uh, no, I, I cannot do that. Sin is not okay with him. Instead of cheapening his grace, well, he'll forgive me. I'm his kid. He loves me no matter what I do. When is the last time the holiness of God made you pause and reconsider your choices. Know in your hearts he is the king and we give our lives in devotion to him, which, which helps us not fear others because we really know who he is. So we prepare our emotions, we prepare our hearts. Thirdly, we prepare our minds, verse 15. But in your hearts regard Christ the Lord as holy, 
ready at any time to give a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Defense, we get our understanding of apologetics from this verse. We make our case. We articulate the reason we can suffer for doing good. We can't return evil for evil, evil, but we give back good. We can love our enemies. We can walk through persecution in such a way that it's obvious we are living for another king and another kingdom. We're not living in the fear of man. We have a hope that is not wishful thinking that all things are going to work out for our good. We have a hope that puts steel in our spine, a rock under our feet, and gives us supernatural strength. And then, then we can articulate it. We can tell others, here is how you can also have this hope. Like this verse is the key verse of why we call this series a life that demands a gospel explanation. It's, yeah, you're going to live a life that shows the reality of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and you're going to be able to tell people why that is and how they too can know Jesus. It's the whole thrust of this letter that Peter is writing to these believers. You're living as Christians among pagans. Live in such a way that you have opportunities to proclaim the gospel. And, and Peter got this. Like You have to believe that for the rest of Peter's life, there's this tinge of pain when he thinks about that moment that Jesus was arrested and was illegally put on trial and he's standing around that fire and people are coming to him. Aren't you one of his? Don't you belong to him? Aren't you one of his disciples? And Peter was not ready to give a defense for the hope that he has. He completely caved to his fear of man, completely gave in, as Jesus knew that he would because Satan was sifting him and trying him. But that wasn't the end of the story for Peter. After he repented and wept and Jesus restored him in John 21, but when he writes a passage like this, you know it means more coming from someone like Peter. Like, be ready. It's coming. Be more ready than I was ready to give a reason for the hope that you have. This is why things like missional communities and DNA groups can be so good for us. Like if we're utilizing them, like if you're not in one, please let us know. Like we're in the process of trying to find the people who aren't so we can get everyone in a missional community, in a DNA group. It's, a, it's essential to your discipleship. It's essential to growing as a Christian because it's giving you a community where you can practice these things. Can you share your story of how Jesus changed you? As simple as that. Tell the story of how you came alive in Christ Jesus. It can be three minutes. It can be five minutes. It can be ten minutes. It can be an hour. We've had all of the above in the, the history of the Crossing Church. Are you doing that with others in your life? So you're going to work. You're going to school. You're going to your family, your extended family, your neighbors, and you're sharing the gospel, and, and then you're coming back to your mission community or your DNA, and you're like, hey, I had an opportunity to share the gospel this week, and here's how it went. Okay, what was good? What didn't work? What are the barriers you need to overcome? Like, let's help each other get better at this. It's the essence of what we do as a church. Can you apply the gospel to all of your fears and all of your wounds and all of your sorrows and all your decisions and all your questions? So you're shepherding each other with the gospel. I'm, I'm afraid of this. Okay, how does the gospel speak truth to that? I'm nervous about this. I have anxiety about this. I'm hurt about this. Okay, how does the gospel speak truth to bring healing in all those situations? We're we're shepherding one another with the gospel. We, we need each other for that. And then we equip and we practice that week after week, month after month, and get better equipped to share 
the hope of Jesus with thousands, literally thousands in our city who need the hope of Jesus and, and billions in the nations. Like this mental preparation is going to take work. It's going to require that we get in the word. It's going to require that we actually speak up and share. And as someone who at one time in my, my walk with Christ was terrified of this, literally terrified, and did it horribly. Like, I would share the gospel in situations, and I'm like, I don't even know if I'm a Christian. I don't think I would believe in Jesus based on what I just said. Like, that's the worst presentation of the gospel I've ever heard in my life. Like, I could write a book on how not to share the gospel and how to be horrible at it. But realizing it was a weakness and asking Jesus to help me and growing and learning and, and, and getting more equipped to do it. And, and honestly, it wasn't all the books that I read. You can read all the books. There's a ton of books on how to share the gospel. It wasn't the books. It was the reps. It was just doing it. Just getting out there and doing it. Falling on your face. Realizing it's not you. It's the Spirit of God in you. Getting more opportunities. Finding more ways that you can share the gospel. Give the reason for the hope that you have. And so... Um, if you're sitting here this morning, you're like, not me. I'm not doing that. I can't do that. That's for other people. That's for the professionals, whatever. Um, then start in the safe place of family, DNA groups, mission communities, and just start with sharing your story. How do you come to know Jesus? That's preparing your mind. Uh, fourthly, prepare your, our spirits. We prepare our spirits. Uh, we don't just have the truth of the hope that we have. We speak and share the truth, but we do it with the right spirit. Verse 16, yet do this with gentleness and respect. What we say is important, yes. How we say it is equally important. Like if you're the sledgehammer of truth, walking around like a pro wrestler, just giving it to everybody, you're just offending people because you're a jerk, beating them up, offending people with your personality, not the gospel. It's about you. It's about how you can change people. And you're not speaking the gospel with gentleness and reverence. This gentleness, this meekness, this humility, a humble strength, reverence, respect for fellow image bearers, trusting that it's the spirit who converts. Like this is a strength. This is not weakness. Remember, you're, you're doing this in the face of persecution, right? Weakness will be running and hiding from persecution, this is a, a strong pro proclamation of the gospel with gentleness and reverence in the face of those who are reviling you and accusing you and abusing you. Done with true humility. Like, I can't change this person's heart. All I can do is talk about Jesus and let the Spirit work. And it's a true humility that Christ has to create in us so we don't get defensive when we're attacked. We don't get abrasive when we're attacked. It's not about us winning. This isn't a competition. And, and I've had those conversations as well when I did get defensive or abrasive. It became about winning the, the argument about theology or God or Jesus. Then it, began a, then, it, then it was about winning the person, right? It's not about us winning. It's not a competition. It's not about us coercing people to agree with us. It's not about us. It's about Jesus and how we can put the spotlight on him and his power. Like, yes, we speak his truth. But we speak it in a way that shows his power and not us trying to show our power and done with this gentle, humble, reverent tone. I really love the person who's persecuting me. I don't want to just see them destroyed. I want to see them transformed by the gospel like I was. And lastly, 
we prepare our lives. Prepare our emotions, prepare our heart, prepare our minds. Prepare our spirit, prepare our lives. Um, keeping a clear conscience, Peter writes. Not sinless perfection, but a life of ongoing repentance. As far as you know, there's no sin unconfessed or unrepented of. There's no accusation of evil against me that will stick from those trying to persecute me. I'm truly doing good and being persecuted for doing good. And the, and the rest of the verse says, my conscience is so clear that accusations don't stick and they, in fact, feel shame. Not because we're shaming them. This is an appropriate kind of shame. Like, not all shame is bad. There's some good shame. And in this case, they're ashamed because they realize I'm reviling someone who's actually doing good. And I'm wrong. And the hope is that kind of good shame will lead to repentance and faith in Jesus. Because it's the right kind of shame we feel when we sin. And we're speaking the hope of the gospel with gentleness and reverence. And it's obvious to them that this is wrong, the way they're treating us. We don't have any control over if or when we'll experience this kind of persecution. It can happen at any time as we live an open and unashamed life in the love of Jesus around people who don't know Jesus. It could happen one day if the laws of our nation change and we lose some of the religious liberties that we have. But we do have control over being prepared emotionally in our minds, hearts, spirit, and how we live. And all of this is possible because verse 15 says that hope is already in you, right? We're not proclaiming a hope that we don't have yet. Proclaim the reality of the hope that is in you. First Peter 1, he started us off with this hope. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ because of his great mercy. He has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Can you lose this living hope that you have because of the new birth inside of you? Verse 4. And into an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Who's it being kept by? You are being guarded by God's power through faith for a salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. This hope that we receive through the new birth is inside of us forever, kept by the power of God. So for some here, the question might be, well, do you have this hope? Is Jesus alive inside of you? Have you come alive in him? Do you have a story to tell how Jesus became your ultimate hope and now you're living with that hope? Like if you can't say Jesus is your ultimate treasure and hope, like please, we invite you today to turn from treasuring things of this world or, or temporary fleeting things. We invite you from hoping in things that are temporary to finding your treasure and your hope in Jesus alone your ultimate treasure, your ultimate hope. Like you can do that in a few moments. We'll have a time of prayer and reflection and you can call out to him for salvation. Jesus, I know I'm a sinner. I know I don't really love you as the way you've created me to love you and I don't want to be that anymore. I want to experience life in you. Please forgive me and come in. I believe in you, Jesus, as we read in John uh, 3, 16 and 17. Come in and make your home inside of me and give me your life. And give me hope and give me joy that only comes from you. I want to be a follower of you. Just, just expressing your heart's desire in that way. And then we have communion. Come and share in communion as a new believer. It costs Jesus everything to make salvation possible for you. But it's that simple to become a follower of Jesus. So simple a child can become a follower of Jesus.
But for others here who do have the hope of Christ in them, like how are you living a life of preparation? Being made ready for whatever we face. And in whatever ways you, you need to do more work, realize that it's possible because Jesus has already done the work. You already have the hope. You have all you need. You don't need more of him. He needs more of you. So lay down your arms and fall before him and say, have me. You're my, I'm yours. You're mine. Have more of me. I surrender. I submit. I yield. I give my life to you. I'm going to pray, and we'll share in communion together and, and invite you to reflect and, and come when you're ready. Father, thank you so much for the hope that we have in Jesus. It makes all the difference, not just for how we live when life is good, so we're not finding our ultimate joy in the temporary things. We're not worshiping idols that we've created or the idols of our world. But when life is good, we're, we're, we're enjoying the good in life as worship unto you. It really makes a difference when life is hard, when we are suffering, or if we are really going through persecution. God, I pray that we would do the work now for persecution we might face one day because we're so openly, unashamedly living for you. Do this good work in us. Help us to quit fighting you, to quit running to other temporary joys and treasures. Help us to truly rest in who you are, rest in you being ultimate. I pray for those who might be here who've never come alive in Christ Jesus. Jesus has never become their ultimate treasure, their ultimate hope, their savior, their king, their boss, their, their shepherd. I pray that you would open their eyes and help them to see that you are everything and you have done everything necessary for them to have life in you and they would call out to you for salvation and they would believe and they would follow you and give them the boldness to not just do that inside of them but to tell others so that that others can walk with them through what it means to follow Christ. And we do pray for literally millions of brothers and sisters, family, that are scattered around the world in these nations where it's hard to be a Christian. It's even dangerous. And they're meeting in secret. And they have to be hush-hush about their relationship with Jesus. They have to be very careful how they talk about Jesus. And they're being ostracized by their own families, they're being kicked out of their families, maybe even imprisoned, maybe even killed, simply because they want to identify with you. We know that the history of the church is littered with the blood of our brothers and sisters who have died proclaiming the hope they have in Christ. May you today, on the Lord's Day, remind them that you are with them, that there are others around the world who are praying for them, and that the truth of passages like this continue to prepare them for the persecution that they are facing or will face. Help them, Father. Be with them. Let them know that they're loved. Let them know that they're not alone. Show compassion and mercy to our brothers and sisters who are facing this kind of persecution today. God, grant them freedom from those who would harm them. But more than that, grant them the opportunity to give a reason for the hope that they have that their persecutors may see that Jesus is better than power and control and false gods, and they would believe. Do all this for the glory of your name alone, we pray.
Amen. Take a few more.